0: Since Divergent is still in the theaters, the first few minutes of this episode will be spoiler-free. You can find the show notes for this episode at areyoujustwatching.com slash 42. Are you just watching episode forty two Divergent? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained christian i 'm eve Franklin, and thank you so much for listening, even though I do apologize to my listeners for going so long without posting an episode. It was late January when I posted the crossover event episode on on um, catching fire. And now it's near the end of March, and I am just now getting around to doing another episode. I have had a few ideas for episodes in, over the prevailing months, but I just have not uh, managed to get my act together enough to actually record them. So maybe those will ideas will be fleshed out and recorded at a later date. In this episode, we are discussing the movie Divergent, and as I, as you have been warned at the beginning, I will talk about it spoiler-free for the first few minutes. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, you can listen for a few minutes, but I would encourage you uh, to shut it off at some at the point where I warn you to do so, and go see the movie or read the book before listening to the rest of the discussion. I hate to spoil movies, and um, I mean... If you don't mind it being spoiled, then listen on, but I'm not sure that you would really get much out of my discussion um, without understanding what's going on in the movie uh, prior to listening. So, The movie is fairly clean. It's based on a young adult novel. Uh, It doesn't have a lot of language in it, though it does have quite a bit of violence. There is some skin uh, and a couple kisses. Uh, There doesn't appear to be anything in it that would be alarming for the pg-13 crowd that it is aimed at however i would not take young children to this movie uh it it would be a little over their heads uh i in the movie theater with me there was a birthday party of quite a few young young girls uh ranged out along i think they were having a birthday party through the theater and so they had to sign seats and I was really kind of shocked at how young they were for this movie. So I would not recommend it for that age group. This would, this would definitely be a PG-13 movie because of the violence, if nothing else. Um, it also shows young people dealing straight on with some pretty horrific fears and some pretty um, uh, issues that probably are not the kind of issues that you want young children having to think about. So just to keep it vague, um, just consider that when you when you're deciding whether to take a child. Like I said, this is a young adult novel. So it is aimed at the the young adult audience. So probably 13 to 18. I imagine most older people who are young at heart would enjoy it as well. The movie is uh, futuristic. It's based on a, on science fiction, something that has happened in Chicago in the future after a war. So it's like a post-war Chicago uh, there are probably some landmarks for people who know Chicago very well. I don't, so never been there. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a good movie. I the the soundtrack was not the greatest. I will play a little bit here in a little in a few minutes so that you can hear a. a general idea of what the sound is for the movie but it had a lot of uh, rock music in it as well and i don't particularly care for those kind of soundtracks where they're heavily dependent on popular music to me that keeps the movie from being timeless now all that being said the actual score not the soundtrack but the score to the to divergent was composed by a gentleman named junkie xl i've never heard of him before imagine he's probably done some some more edgy movies that I don't watch, but, um, the, the, this score is very techno electronic sounding. So it, it's not really musical. Um, there's not this big orchestra epic feel to it. It's just, um, more of a background, uh, mood music. I'll give you here a little bit to listen to. Divergent was casted very well. I um, was actually a little surprised to see Maggie Q playing a, a subordinate position uh, in the movie. Uh, I know her from watching Nikita on the CW network, and over the years, <laughs> and so it was a little it was a little distracting to me to see her in the in the role that she played in this movie. I, I was like, oh wait a minute, that's Nikita. No wait a minute, wait a minute, it's Tori, not Nikita. So uh, she was a bit of a distraction to me because I knew her as another character, uh, really identified with her as another character. But other than that, I didn't know any of the other actors in the movie. None of them stood out to me for, um, from past performances. And the the two leads, uh, the girl that plays Triss and the boy who plays Four, were very well casted. I think they fit their parts really well. I think she could have been smaller, um, based on what she was in the book, they really describe her as being very small, and she actually has a, a companion in the initiates that is smaller than she is in the movie, and that kind of it was a little bit of a shock to me, because I, I really felt like she should have been the smallest and the weakest of the bunch. Um, but, I mean, she she fit the part really well in the way she looked, and and she was very much an eye actor. You could look into her eyes and and really feel what she was feeling. So I thought they, they did a very good job casting there. Um, I have read the book. I r- recommend that if you're going to go see a popular movie based on a popular book, that it's always a good idea to read the book. Um, the movie, in my opinion, stuck very close to the book. There were obviously some things they condensed in order to get the whole story in. Um, there were some things they flipped around and did slightly different, and there there was a the climax at the end was done very different um, from the way it was done in the book so there are some differences, but I think that the 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 things that they changed uh worked very well so i I was not adverse to that at all i I think that you have to when you take a popular book and you make a movie out of it, a lot of times you have to make some decisions. Uh, number One, to improve maybe on the story because the the a book is told from one person 's point of view, and when you get a lot of of people together um, to discuss how that will translate into film, sometimes you might come up with a different idea for how um, to bring about an end uh, over the way it was done in the book or something like that. And I think that the decisions they made when they made this book into a movie were good decisions. So if there are people out there who are disappointed, who have read the book and went to see the movie and are disappointed, I will have to disagree with you on that. I think they did a very good job of translating the book into a movie. Now, that's the end of my spoiler-free zone. If you want to continue listening, I will assume that you have read the book or watched the movie. And I will tell you this. the um, Because I've only seen the movie once in a dark theater, um, trying to take notes in the dark, and I have read the book, some of my discussion may rely more heavily on the book than the movie simply because I had one chance to get the quote written down, and sometimes I can't even read my handwriting when I come out of the theater. So... Uh, I think for the most part, most of the quotes that I'm going to refer to were in the book as well, in some sh- way, shape or form. So by discussing them at length and in here, I'm really covering both the book and the movie. But if I infer something that it, that as being in the movie that actually isn't in the movie, just take into account that it was in the book. Um, if if that is uh, part of the discussion. Okay, now that everybody who has not read the book or seen the movie has left the discussion, I want to um, delve in a little deeper into the main theme of the story that is covered in, in both of the media. Um, interestingly enough, this movie really has only one major theme, and uh, it, it's kind of instigated in, in several different ways, and I can dis- discuss it probably under three different headings, but it's really all the same theme. It all kind of all goes together. I believe the movie does a little better job of setting things up than the book does. I, I went back after coming out of the movie, I went back to look at the beginning of the book to see if it had the same kind of setup because I kind of was a a little bit lost uh, when, when I first started reading the book. We're instantly into Triss's head and she's going to choose her faction at the very beginning. And it, there's really not a lot of explanation as to what, the system was that created the faction system and and what happened and why they're living in this uh, minimally populated kind of destroyed uh, post-war Chicago. There's not a lot of buildup, not a lot of explanation. You just kind of take it as accepted because Tris lives there and that's the way she is in her head. She just accepts it and she Um, is a little puzzled about what faction she's going to choose, but she doesn't do a lot of thinking about how her system was set up. And that's probably really true to her perspective. I mean, a young woman of 16 who's getting ready to make a a really important decision in her life is not going to be sitting there thinking about how that system was set up. But the movie does a little better job of just giving you a little backstory to start out with. And um, part of that monologue, and I didn't get it all written down, obviously, but part of the monologue was that the war was terrible and the rest of the world was destroyed. So we know that, at least from the people who are living in this post-war Chicago's point of view, there is nothing else going on in the rest of the world. The rest of the world is destroyed. They are the remaining, the remains of humanity, and there is nothing else. Now, the... Um, and the choosing ceremony in, in the book is slightly different from what the way it is in the movie. In the movie, it was the leader of the erudite who kind of introduces things and explains why they're there to choose. And in the book, it's actually the uh, abnegation leader, Marcus, who is doing the uh, preliminary talking um, He points out, and I'm going to read it from the book because I I think it's interesting, the differences between the book and the movie. But this is what it, it says in the book. It says, decades ago, our ancestors realized that it is not political ideology, religious belief, race or nationalism that is to blame for a warring world. Rather, they determined that it was the fault of human personality, of humankind's inclination toward evil in whatever form that is. They divided into factions that sought to eradicate those qualities they believed responsible for the world's disarray. For those who blamed aggression, they formed amity. For those who blamed ignorance became the erudite. Those who blamed duplicity created candor. Those who blamed selfishness made abnegation. And those who blamed cowardice were the dauntless. Now, and then it says, working together, these five factions have lived in peace for many years, each contributing to a different sector of society. And um, in the movie, there is actually a later quote. It's not at the beginning, but it's it's later the the leader of the Euridite says that human weakness is the enemy and eradicating it is how we will remain a peaceful society. At another point, she says, human nature destroyed our world. We will restore peace. This time it will last. Now, all of that to say that I believe this movie actually got it right. Human nature destroys the world. And we know that from Scripture. I mean, it's actually one of the main themes of the Bible, from from the fall of mankind through Adam all the way up until Christ died on the cross to pay the ultimate penalty for humanity's sin. and And it is that sin that inborn sin that is in each of us that will result in ultimately in the destruction of our world and the rest and the restoration that God will bring where there will be no sin in a perfect heaven and earth so the overall theme of divergent is really the same overall theme of the Bible that human nature is terrible and it destroys the world and so I I think it's actually kind of cool that that underlying foundation so many times now if you listen to the way people talk they just assume the uh, ultimate goodness of mankind rather than the sinful nature of mankind and when you set up uh, philosophies and and societies that are based on the idea that man is good rather than those that believe and are founded on the fact that man is bad at heart um, those systems, the ones that are based on the idea that man is good, are ultimately destined to fail. Because if you make that a wrong assumption, then man will always disappoint you. Somebody is always going to break the system. And so, really, the systems that work are the ones that start out with the assumption that someone's going to come along and do something that will break the system. And so, you have to set up a system that either works best on the idea that men are going to be selfish and prideful and arrogant and, uh, steal from each other and all of the other things that mankind just does naturally. Um, then, you know, they might actually manage to last a little long. No, no society will be perfect because the only perfect society is the one where God is in control and we all are sacrificing ourselves to his ultimate plan. And so no society is can be peaceful and maintain and, and last. So even the assumptions that are made in this book that there is a way to uh, stabilize this bad trait of human nature, it's just not possible apart from God. And I think actually the system in Divergent shows that because the, the lady who is speaking up on behalf of... Um, trying to fix the system that she sees as being broke. Um, She actually heads up the, the erudite who are the people who are learned. Uh, They, they like to learn, they like to know things. And so they think because they know so much that they can somehow be better at governing than those who are selfless because the abnegation faction are the ones that actually do the government and they are the ones that are selfless. They actually uh, actively uh, attempt to, put aside and sacrifice themselves on behalf of the goodness of others. And in the original system that is set up, it seems to be working that abnegation be the leaders because they don't ever do anything for themselves. But then you have to add into that, that is any man truly selfless? And I think that that is what Tris is struggling with because she has been raised in abnegation and in her own heart and mind, she knows that she's not capable of being truly selfless. Um, she there, even in her attempts to be selfless, she is selfish. And so she actually rejects abnegation and goes to dauntless, which, um, if you haven't seen the movie or read the book, I just kind of ruined the beginning, but she chooses dauntless because she doesn't feel like she can be selfless enough to be abnegation, even though she believes abnegation is beautiful. And when she looks at it from the outside, As an outsider looking in, she thinks it's the most beautiful of the factions because of the the selflessness of the people and helping the factionless and, and all of the other things they do. She thinks it's beautiful, but she just doesn't feel like she can be a part of it because in her own heart, she knows that she can't truly be selfless. Now, what's interesting about this system that they have set up is that each of the factions are concentrating on one particular sin that they wish to avoid. And be in so doing, they don't necessarily uh, look at the other sins in their lives. Now, we know from Scripture that each of us have a sin that we are most uh, attracted to in some way, shape, or form. There, There is that sin in us that we tend to do, and some have different sins. So we don't all have the same sinful nature. We all have different sinful natures. But what I find is interesting about that is that there is... That even if you have uh, one sin that you're avoiding, then that doesn't mean you're getting rid of the other sins in your life. In fact, the Candor um, is the the honest uh, faction. Everybody there just speaks their mind and they don't uh, hold back any truth. And and in fact, you find out um, from I believe it's actually in the book that the initiati- initiates of Candor have to take truth tests, and they're actually their final exam is to be given a, a truth serum that makes them tell the truth, and then they 're in in front of everybody asked very personal questions so they 're forced to tell the truth about themselves and i don 't know obviously telling the truth is very important. Um, I also think that sometimes um, holding your your yourself back from saying things that would be rude. Uh, that just don't need to be aired or said out loud um, is also valuable. There's some discretion in, in just not speaking uh, rather than speaking the truth that would be hurtful or hateful. So there's two sides to that coin. Now, some of the scriptures that I have uh, looked up for this, and and really, to be honest, you mm-hmm. could look up a lot of scriptures in the Bible, and I just picked a select few, but in Romans 3... Um, there's a passage, it's actually a, a, several different Old Testament passages put together that are referred to by uh, Paul as he's writing to the Romans. And he, um, it starts in verse 9, it says, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. And then you jump down just a little bit and it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So that is actually a very major passage in the New Testament that refers to how we are all sinners, how this is the the production of our hands without God, that we, we cannot put together a society that doesn't have um, lying and feet that are swift to shed blood and paths of ruin and misery. And we just simply don't know a way to peace. We can try it, We can try all these different man-made ideas, but we're always going to fall short because we all sin. The next thing I wanted to discuss... that some of the quotes that really stuck out to me in the movie, I didn't really notice them so much in the book. They probably were in there to some degree, but they really—it was so repetitious in the movie that it just really stood out. And three of them that I, I wrote down are: "It all works. Everyone knows where they belong." This is actually Triss's um, voice, I believe. She she was talking about uh, how you choose your faction and that you take this test, and then every, everything. Uh, in their society works because everybody has a place in it, which I actually think is rather dishonest of her to say because the factionless obviously do not have a place and they don't belong anywhere. So saying that everyone knows where they belong is actually a lie. The then she says, "I'm I'm I trust the test. The test will tell me who I am and where I belong." So she's putting this great deal of trust in something that the the people of their factions had put together. It's a man-made system. And she's trusting that man-made system to give her purpose in life and tell her what she's supposed to be and where she's supposed to go and who she's supposed to belong to. And so right off the bat, that whole trust that she has put in the system really falls apart because when she takes the test, she's told the test... Uh, The results are inconclusive, and so she is divergent, which means uh, she doesn't have one particular trait that points her to one particular faction. And it just starts out this whole thing for her as not only being very frightening, but that she really has uh, no purpose. She can't figure out where she is supposed to belong now in the uh, in the movie, this is different from the book, but in the movie, when they introduce the choosing ceremony, the leader of the erudite uh, says that the future belongs to those who know where they belong and I think she's the one that you really hear say several times throughout the movie uh, that pe- that the system would work better when people are plugged in where they belong, and that if they're not where they belong then then they're causing you know problems in the system which to me kind of is a little iffy because if they test you for where you're supposed to go and then give you the choices to choose to ignore the results of your test and choose wherever you want to go, um, then that's really kind of defeating the whole purpose. If you're wanting people to uh, be in a faction where they belong, um, then you would have to force them to go where the test tells them to go rather than giving them the choice. So I think that the, the system is actually set up in a way that, Makes that whole concept or ideal not work. Uh, When we're talking about uh, where people belong, I think that that concept really works well for, for young people. That's why this is a young adult story. It's like the, I think that's the thing that, that especially mid teens, people, young people who are in high school, who are looking at the rest of their lives going, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? Where do I belong? I think that that is a theme that really speaks very well to them. Um, it's a hard one because when you reach a certain point in your life where you're still young and you have your whole life ahead of you, you want to know what your purpose in life is, and I would have to say that apart from God, there is no purpose. Because if you listen to atheists talk about um, what what they believe uh, apart from God, uh, they they don't really have any direction. They have no place to turn to other than other other people, like they do in this in this story. The only thing they have is aptitude tests and uh, scholarship tests and, you know, the things that the systems that man has set up to try and guide you where you should go. But none of those are really true guidance because wisdom comes from God. And if you believe in that, then, and you seek God's will, then you will have purpose and, and place where God is pointing you to be. But if you're not, if you're looking to man to fulfill those, those questions in your life, um, you're going to stumble that they're, they're going to lead you astray. And you're going to, at some point question what you know about yourself and what other people know about you. So, uh, it's um, that's a hard question to ask and a hard question to answer, apart from uh, the guidance of God. Now, some of the scriptures that I kind of jotted down to go with this topic are um, a couple from Proverbs. There's actually a, quite a bit in Proverbs that have to deal with wisdom and purpose. And if you just sat down and read it from beginning to end, you'll get a lot of really good um, information about where wisdom come from, comes from and how to live through wisdom, um, Solomon was a very wise man. He was uh, celebrated across the world uh, for being very wise, and that wisdom came from God. It was actually granted to him upon request. And so anything that Solomon wrote that is recorded in the scripture has a lot to do with uh, defining uh, wisdom and purpose and that kind of thing. So anyway, Proverbs 16.4 says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Proverbs nineteen twenty one says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So that means that we can, mankind can have a lot of really great ideas, but only those things that are purposed by God will have lasting effect. Now, uh, in Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, for, I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. And that is a really, uh, a, a great promise from God that he has a, a perfect plan for each and every one of us. And that if we are living in his will, we will be within his plan and be following a divine purpose uh, in our life. So that is an incredible promise. And all it takes is just accepting that promise. In James one five it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And this is another great promise, because it means that if we are uh, in that point in our lives where we're questioning and we really don't know which way to go, we're in a, as a division in the road, we can ask God for wisdom on that, and he will give it to us if we ask him. He, he's not um, going to withhold that kind of understanding from us if we genuinely want to know where he, where he wants us to go. So all of those scriptures are really good. One other thing is I I mentioned about the atheist and trying to come up with human wisdom that will give us a purpose and a a guide. Um, I think one of the best books of the Bible to turn to when you're thinking about whether mankind has a good way of defining purpose apart from God is to read the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's actually uh, another writing of Solomon, King Solomon, who was the wisest man ever, um, granted a a special gift of God uh, for wisdom. But if you read through Ecclesiastes, and I've done a study on it, it's absolutely amazing how it leads you through all of the various things that man turns to, uh, to try and find purpose in life. And the ultimate... Uh, conclusion is that everything is vanity, that there there is nothing that has purpose under the sun except for to follow God's commandments. And so it, it's, um, it takes you through step by step how a man searches for purpose in his life and the ultimate conclusion that you can only draw when you examine all of the evidence as atheists say they like to do. So I highly encourage you, if you haven't done it, go read through the book of Ecclesiastes and even look up some good Bible studies on it because there's some really good stuff in Ecclesiastes. Now a quick little bunny trail that I want to take um, before going and addressing the last little bit that I have to discuss about the movie is the idea of free will. Now the erudite leader who, in this particular book, um, her... Uh, attempt to try and, and fix their society, her idea was to that everybody has to fit into the faction that they belong in, and the reason that they want each of them in those particular factions is to control them, to make them think a certain way and behave a certain way so that every person is predictable in the way they react. And she has determined that the least predictable of all the factions are the selfless people, the abnegation faction. And so she sees them as being the enemy because they are the least predictable. The The people who she hates the most, the di- divergent, seem to come out of that faction. And I'm, I think it's interesting that it's the faction who is... Um, dedicated to not being selfish, to giving of themselves freely to other people that have the highest incidence of people able to think for themselves and think on a variety of levels, um, to be able to weigh uh, truth and education and selflessness and and all of the other things equally uh, to the point where they can actually pick and choose which of the other factions they could go to um and i i think it's that that selflessness that taking yourself out of yourself um that allows you to broaden your horizons but anyway this erudite leader thinks that abnegation is the enemy because they tend to come out as free thinkers basically um and so she takes dauntless which is which are the warrior class the people who are courageous above everything else even to the point of stupidity i think and in some ways um always running to jump onto moving trains and jumping off of moving trains and uh just doing things uh out of careless uh doing things out of careless courage that you know don't necessarily make sense but this is the faction that triss takes herself to Because she thinks that she cannot be selfless, uh, she takes herself into uh, being courageous and being, and she seems to fit in very well there. Um, But what she runs into is, is that most of them are mindless, uh, courage people. They, they, um just are easy to control because they will always take the step that is the bravest thing to do. And they don't always stop and think about whether that's the right thing to do. As long as it's the bravest thing to do, that's the step they're going to take. And that makes them easy to control. Erudite actually puts them into uh, a a continuous simulation in which they can then be controlled um, uh, mentally. And so she turns the entire faction into a mindless, army uh that will just go and do whatever they're told to do and <laughs> i i kind of thought that was interesting that she that her idea of of a perfect faction is one that she herself is in control of um that she can tell them wh- who to kill where to go and just it, completely eliminate any free will um that i just found it fascinating that that was the underlying idea the humorous thing I found about this setup, where the uh, they've turned the people in Dauntless into mindless uh, into a mindless army, is that the leadership of this uh, faction, I, I would assume, in cahoots with the leadership of the Erudite have determined that they only want the 10 best of the initiates to make it actually as members of the faction, meaning that they will knock out anybody who is not part of the top 10. It's actually more of them in the movie than in the book, but in the book it's just the top 10. Make them become factionless. But to me, that seems kind of counterproductive because if you're only going to turn the entire faction into a mindless army, what does it matter if you have only the best or the elite fighters, the best, the best of the best? Because they're all going to be mindless and not be able to conduct themselves to the best of their abilities because they're they're just mindless drones at this point. That to me, that was kind of a a, a juxtaposition in the plot that maybe the author didn't think through quite well. Um, because it seems to me they would accept anybody and everybody into the faction just to get the numbers they need for their mindless army. So that whole situation there just seemed really weird to me. I mean, you need your free will in order to behave as proper soldiers. I think that's one of the reasons why... Uh, a, a volunteer army is always better than an en, a enlisted army because a volunteer army, you're training people to think for themselves and to be able to follow orders intelligently, and you get the best soldier that way. And so if you have a mindless army, you have people who are just mindlessly following orders, and they're not applying their intelligence to the way they follow their orders. And that would not be the ideal soldier. Now, in the book, the faction system is is set up as being democratic, but it really it isn't democratic because everybody is told where to go and they, though there there is one choice that they can make at one point in their lives, they can't change their minds they can't uh change to another faction if the one they chose at the age of sixteen is not turns out not to be the right faction for them, which is a little weird because most young people even today will change their minds multiple times before they arrive at their final uh i uh their final career in life. I mean, if you send your young person away to college, which is usually done at 17 or 18, not 16, uh, they usually will change their mind at least twice. Um, if they're going to college, they'll change their mind on their major. A lot of times, uh, what they major in doesn't even actually have an impact on the career that they end up doing once they get out of college. So, um, expecting a 16 year old to know what they want to be for the rest of their life based on one aptitude test. That's, that's, um, uh, pretty imaginative, but the concept that people ha- can't think for themselves, that they need someone else to direct them and think for them, is one of the idea. One of the reasons why I personally believe socialism doesn't work, because you can't fit people in compartments like that. You really can't. There isn't um, a a way to make people uh, always be what you want them to be. Sometimes they break out into uh, different ways of thinking and or need to change their mind at some point in their life where something major happens to them that changes their direction. And so I think that this whole totalitarian view of putting people into compartments and making us and making a system that works like that is, is um, just doesn't work. Now, the last thing that I wanted to talk about, which is actually a good transition from the previous discussion is there's two um, quotes. One, one appears in both the book and the movie and the other one I don't recall hearing in the movie, but it really stood out to me when I read it in the book and they were both, um, really having to do with four or Tobias as his real name is. Um, and what he says uh, about his, his personal goals and what he's striving to be. Now the, uh, the first one in the the book was when he's discussing with Tris, why she left abnegation and, if if you have the book that it's on page 336 he says i have a theory that selflessness and bravery aren't all that different all your life you've been training to forget yourself so when you're in danger it becomes your first instinct i could belong in abnegation just as easily and tris replies yeah well i left abnegation because i wasn't selfless enough no matter how hard i tried to be And he smiles at her and says, that's not entirely true. That girl who lets someone throw knives at her to spare a friend who hit my dad with a belt to protect me, that selfless girl, that's not you. And so he points out that being brave sometimes, especially when you're being brave to help others is a form of selflessness. And so that was why he was able to make the transition from agnegation to dauntless. And it's why she has so successfully made the transition as well because she is truly selfless enough um, that she thinks of others first and that is, makes her courageous. And I, I got to thinking about that because um, it, it's that concept that's in Scripture about laying down your life for another and being able to go the extra mile. And, and they even point out, uh, the author of the book, Veronica Roth, even points out uh, it, that Dauntless has the most religious people in it as a faction, and I think that that is where faith comes in because when you have to to let go of yourself, then you have to have faith uh, in something greater than yourself in order to sacrifice yourself and Christ was the ultimate sacrifice because he laid down his life for us, and as it says in scripture um, it you, you can lay down your life for a friend, but when you when you take that extra step and lay down your life for a sinner or for someone you don't know, that is that is true selflessness. And so I think that takes great faith and it also takes great courage. And so that is why there's this easy crossover between abnegation and dauntless for those who are uh, have the true understanding of what dauntless stands for. Now, in a later part of the book, and it's actually a, a line that's in the movie as well, uh, Four explains why he has put the symbols for all of the factions um, as uh, as tattoos all the way down his back. And he says, I don't want to just be one thing. I want to be brave and selfless and smart and kind and honest. And so he sees the value in um, taking each of the good traits of each of the faction and striving to have those in his life, not just concentrating on one, but doing all of them and making himself a well-rounded individual that will uh, have an impact on people's lives in a in a to a greater extent. And then he's and then he's honest in saying that he struggles with being kind and. So I think Four is an absolutely amazing character. He's actually, I think, a lot of people's favorite character because of the way uh, Veronica Roth writes him. But he is uh, all of those things or striving to be all of those things that would make him the best person. And he takes all of the, the pros of each of the um, factions and turns them right into the right way. Now, what's interesting about that is that in the book, Tris then turns that around, and we end up going full circle because she whispers back to him, "No one's perfect. It doesn't work that way. One bad thing goes away, and another bad thing replaces it." And then, in her own mind, she says, "I traded cowardice for cruelty. I traded weakness for ferocity." So, what she's saying is, is that you you can strive to be a better person and well rounded and have all of the good traits, but when you whenever you try to remove one good trait, you end up with another bad trait to take its place. And like, I would say, like if you're, as I kind of mentioned earlier in the podcast, if you're brutally honest, that can actually, uh, be hateful and hurtful. And so there's always a counterbalance to that. And that is why, uh, in our own efforts, in our own attempts to be self-righteous, we will always fail. And that's why we need Christ to, uh, make us a new creation, to turn us over, uh, uh, and to take us away from our bondage and sin. And there's, oh, there's just gobs of scriptures about that in the New Testament. Um, Romans is a really great book to read because it takes you through that whole concept of laying down your, the old man and becoming a new man in Christ and, and why we sin and why Christ had to come and, and be the, the, Uh, sacrifice that would take away that sin and all of that. I mean, there's just so much about that in the book of Romans, but in the end, it's, it's that necessity to free ourselves from the bondage of that vicious circle of sin. Um, and allow the Holy Spirit into our heart to guide us in being a new creation and in following the will of God. And we can't do it without the Holy Spirit. We, we simply cannot live apart from our sinful nature without the Holy Spirit uh, being our conscience and telling us when we are, when we are uh, diverting off the path of righteousness. So I highly encourage you um i as I try to to bring this back into a more of a, a call to salvation at the end of my podcast i ha- really hope that you will uh explore this even further and I'll put a link in the show notes to uh if you're interested in in uh, learning finding god i'll I'll give you a link to some place you can go and and work through those issues for yourself. Did you see that? <laughs> I am pleased to introduce my first listener submission to the Did You See That? segment. And this is from Joey, and it's on the movie Devil, which is an In Night In Night Shyamalan movie. I probably pronounced his name wrong. I can never say it right.
1: Hello, my name is Joey. Recently, I watched a movie I'm from I'm 2010, and actually, I was... I was hesitant to send in um a segment about it to your show cuz um I thought it was rated R and um normally I check movies online before I watch them but um I forgot it was um actually a PG-13 movie and actually um it it doesn't it doesn't have no nude ditty and it has um very, very low, bad, um, language. But, um, it does, um, have gore. So, if you're offended by gore, you might not want to watch this. But what I appreciated a lot about this movie is that it was more, um, biblical to, um, what um Satan is, and who um he is, then almost every other suspense or horror movie I've um ever seen, it was excellent, and um t- t- I might you know s- spoil the ending, so um I'll try um not to, but um the um m- message I got from this movie was that everyone is um sinful and if you repent satan um can't um touch you and i really um liked um that um a lot it takes place in a elevator where one of them is satan and then um it s- starts um like that and um there um are police watching them through um a camera and, um, Satan, like, planned, um, certain things. I'm, um, about, um, to s- spoil, um, the ending. So fast forward this part and then watch the movie and then, you know, come back to, um, this part. At the end, someone repents of, um, their sins and then Satan, um, tells them, I, I really wanted you. And then, Satan leaves. Um, so I love, um, that Satan lost, um, at the end. And, um, it shows that if you repent of your sins and live your life a different way after, you're saved and Satan, um, can't, um, touch you. And I, um, love that. And I liked how during the whole, movie, it looked like Satan was um in control, but at the end, at the end, he lost. And someone, well, I think became a, I'm a Christian or I'm a Catholic. It's not a good like doctrine movie, but, um, but Satan is a loser and he lost because of um, the sinner repented of his sin and i love that about this movie and um personally i um i um, loved it
0: thanks so much for that quick review uh joey and i hope to hear more from you in the future now if you want to submit a listener submission just like he did for the did you see that segment I uh, really hope you will. You, there's a variety of ways you can do that. You can go to our website, and there's actually a little voicemail uh, button that you can click on. and you Or you could record it yourself as an MP3 or a wave and send it to me via email at feedback at com, Or you can call and leave me a message on our phone line, 903-231-2221. And if you have any other comments that you want to make about the movie Divergent or the book, you can come and leave comments on our show notes for the episode, which again are at areyoujustwatching.com dot com slash forty two. And you can also you uh, use the feedback at areyoujustwatching.com dot com, or the um, leave a voicemail that is on on the the post of the website. Now, I really would like to start. Um, a discussion about the movie. Cause I know I, my uh, review in this episode has been a little bit scatterbrained and I'm, really apologize for that but I there's a lot of really great things that we could discuss in this movie and, and if you have watched it and want to start a discussion the best place to do that would be on our F- Facebook page and you can find us at Facebook at our um, just by looking up are you just watching we're right there on Facebook we have a page and you can comment um, right where I post uh, the link to this episode so that is a really great place to start the discussion it's open to all who um, are available please share that with your friends, uh, um, trying broaden my audience a little bit by, um, sharing that. Now you can support this website by, uh, either by donation, you can make donations at, on our website, but probably the best thing to do is you can actually click on things that, um, I have, uh, posted, uh, like DVDs and things that I've posted in, you can click on those links and they'll take you to Amazon. And if you purchase things, uh, from where I've linked them in our show notes, then you can actually go and purchase them. And a portion of that purchase will come back to support the podcast. And it doesn't, uh, add to the cost of anything, uh, by following those links. It just, uh, a portion of your sale comes back and supports the podcast. And I do this for free. I make no money at it, um, So anything that that comes towards uh, this podcast actually goes to support uh, the hosting of the website and those various costs. So really appreciate you supporting it. Um, But most of all, I hope that you would subscribe and, and listen whenever I get a rare episode out. And I really appreciate your patience on that as well. If you have any suggestions for movies that you would like me to talk about, those that are out on DVD, I do require that they not be uh, rated R. They have to be PG-13 or under. Um, I'd be more than willing to look at um, whatever movies that you would like. I don't guarantee that I will actually review them because I will only review movies that I enjoy watching because I don't like to talk about movies I don't like. Um, if I don't like it, I'm not going to discuss it in a podcast. So I try to say something positive about everything that I review. And so that's kind of uh, where I draw the line is if it's just not a movie that I can say anything positive about, I'm not going to review it. Well, I hope you enjoy this episode on Divergent. And I hope if you haven't seen the movie or read the book that you will go and see the movie or read the book um, and be listen to it or uh, read it with a, your biblical glasses on so that you uh, can t- uh, discuss it with other people with a biblical worldview in mind. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Eve Franklin. And don't just watch.
1: Are You Just Watching as a proud
0: member of the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. Our opening vocal talent was thanks to Mariah. The theme song is used courtesy of Answers in Genesis. For more great podcasts like this one, visit the Noodle Mix Network at noodle.mx. That's noodle.mx.